have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be all over the book of Hebrews, and you'll see why in a moment. But let's look at our ascension questions. Uh, these are questions you should be able to answer by now. Uh, where did Jesus go in the ascension? He went back home to glory. What did Jesus do in his glorification? He sat down. What did Jesus do after he sat down? He sent the Holy Spirit. That's all that we have seen thus far. But we got one more question for today. Uh, we, we have more questions, but the question for today is this. How did Jesus send the Spirit? How did he send the Spirit? And so the next logical progression in this study of the ascension is to ask this question and to realize he asked the Father to give his people what they needed and then some. He not only asked the Father to give us his promised Spirit, but he is still asking the Father. And so... In your notes and here on the screen, you can see Christ's exaltation involves or begins with the resurrection, which we tend to just kind of stop there. Then the ascension, then the glorification, then the session, which is the sitting at the right hand of the Father. And then last week we talked about the procession, the sending forth of the Spirit. Well, today we want to look at the intercession of the, whole, of the ascended Christ. And I want you to see that in each aspect that we have been studying, glorification, session, procession, and today intercession, it plays out the messianic offices of Jesus Christ. He entered into heaven as the God-man who shines with the Shekinah glory. And then in sitting at the right hand, it emphasizes his office as Messianic king. He sits at the right hand. And then in sending forth the Holy Spirit to speak God's word, to inspire God's teachers and pastors, he is really emphasizing his office as prophet. But today, when we look at his intercession, we're going to look at the focus as the high priest. And so I just want to kind of throw that out to you to realize Messiah is prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus is fulfilling all of that as the God-man. So he shines, he sits, he sins, and he saves. Now, look in your notes. Jesus is the prophetic priest-king. So there's the three offices. He's the prophetic priest-king who fulfills the main purpose of both Israel and the church. Both Israel and the church were called to be a royal priesthood, a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests who would then mediate God, uh, God himself, mediate God's words, mediate God's forgiveness to the nations. So God is ruling in heaven and through the nation of Israel, they were to reach the nations as a kingdom of priests. They failed to do that. But in Christ, Christ came and fulfilled what Adam failed to do and what Israel failed to do. And so here's the good news. In Christ, 
we as the church get to get in on that blessing of being a royal priesthood. We get to be mediators of God's goodness to the nations. Does that make sense? So Israel was to, and, and, you know, and here's the thing, Israel is us, okay? Israel was supposed to be a whole kingdom of priests. Well, they messed that up on the day the Ten Commandments were given. And so only the Levites who stood up for God's glory and uh, took a stand for God, they, the priesthood was limited from Israel down to one tribe. But we know even the Levites failed as priests. And so Christ came to fulfill these offices. And in Christ, we as Gentiles get in on that goodness. And so those verses are there. You can read that. But I just want you to see this idea of a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests has been promised in the Old Testament. Israel failed to do it. Christ fulfilled it. And in Christ, the nations get in on it. Israel isn't, doesn't get in on it. Why? Because they rejected Christ. Because they rejected Christ, they still have hard hearts and are waiting on the sidelines to get into the game because they need to accept Christ. So here's the thing. What are the four main acts of the royal priesthood? So I want you to think, what, you know, what do priests do? What does a royal priest do? In the Bible, there's basically four main things they do. Two of them are towards God. Two of them are towards the people. Towards God, they offer up sacrifices for the people. Towards God, they have, offer up prayers towards the people. Okay, So priests are focused towards God on behalf of the people. Prophets are focused towards the people on behalf of God. They're both mediators. They stand between the people and God. But prophets look towards the people and speak forth to the people for God. Priests turn their back to the people and look up to God to offer up prayers and sacrifices. Having done that, the people, uh, the priests, then turns towards the people to offer God's blessing of approval. He has accepted your sacrifice. Be blessed, O people of God. But they also have a responsibility to teach the people, equip the people what God's law is so they don't violate it. So they don't sin against God. So they know how to sit, bring their sacrifices. They need to learn. Hey, it has to be a spotless lamb. Okay, You have to bring it at this time. You have to bring it at this place. Here's what's accepted by God. We don't know what God wants. We don't come up with this. God has to reveal it. And he revealed it through the priest. So these are the main functions. Now for today... And as we look at Christ's priesthood, first of all, Christ does all those things, okay, as our high priest. But we're going to focus on these, the sacrificing and the interceding. And so that's what we're going to, so that's kind of like a mini overview of everything about the priesthood to get you orientated to this. Now, let me ask you this. There's only one book in the New Testament that calls Christ priest. What book do you think that is? What? What? 
Hebrews, yes, Hebrews. There's only one book in the New Testament that calls Christ priest. Isn't that interesting? And it is the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. So it, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. That's, that, uh, I think that's where we're going to start. I, we, we're going to be all over the book of Hebrews. But here's what I want you to see this morning. I want to show you the four blessings of the royal priesthood. I want to show you the four blessings of the ascended Christ, who is not only king sitting at the right hand, he's not only a prophet sending forth the Spirit, but he is a high priest. And here are four blessings. Are you ready for them? He satisfies, he sits, he sympathizes, and he saves. That's the outline. That's what he does up there. So let's look at the first blessing of our Lord as high priest. Blessing number one, the royal priest satisfies as our perfect sacrifice. Christ is in heaven as high priest. He satisfies as our perfect sacrifice. And so two things I want you to see under that. First of all, Jesus ascends to the right hand, having satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. So, This is interesting. Jesus' high priestly ministry in heaven begins on earth on the cross where he is the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. So what Jesus is doing in heaven begins on earth. So the very depths of his humiliation on the cross as a sacrifice then ascends into heaven and brings that satisfying sacrifice into the very presence of God all the way to heaven. It's all connected. It's it's really amazing. He offered himself up as a sinless sacrifice for our sins on the cross at the crossroads of his humiliation. Two things I want you to see under this. First of all, he ascends after making propitiation. Propitiation. You're like, oh, that's one of those theological words. Yes, it is. But you can understand what it means. And I've taught you this before. When I see propitiation, I think satisfaction. Because propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. God is just. Sin must be punished. And Christ offers himself up as the sacrifice. He absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And the Father desired it, and the Son willed it and desired it as well. Together they provided it. And so He is our satisfaction. Look at Hebrews 2.17. So we're going to kind of stick in the book of Hebrews today. Hebrews 2.17. Notice what it says. Therefore, he had to be make like, made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Pertaining to God. Now notice, this links his priesthood all the way with his entire incarnation. He had to be made like us in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest Notice, in things pertaining to God. Priests have that Godward focus. 
Now, what did he do? He did all that to make propitiation for the sins of people. And so when you substitute in there satisfaction, that's the meaning. He made satisfaction. He satisfied the wrath of God against our sins. That's all propitiation means. Making sufficient payment to satisfy the wrath of God. And so Jesus, Jesus is that sufficient payment for our sins. And not only for all sins, but 1 John says, for the sins of the whole world. He shed his blood. It's sufficient for all. It's effective for the elect when they hear the gospel and they respond by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. They are saved. It's all on the basis of Christ's death. Then he ascended into heaven. He did all that on the cross. Then he ascended into heaven. And notice he ascended to make purification from all our impurity. So having satisfied the wrath of God, Jesus goes to heaven and he makes purification of all our iniquity. Turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Let's look at the first four verses of the book of Hebrews. Notice what it says. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. This is how the whole book begins, talking about the priesthood of Christ. God, after he spoke a long time to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us, in his son. Okay, there's the office of prophet. He has spoken to us in his son. Office of prophet. Whom he appointed heir of all things. There's the office of king. He's heir over everything. He rules over everything. He has in inherited everything. So there's king. Through whom also he made the world. Then it just talks about Jesus being God and man. He is the radiance of his glory. There's the glorification, the exact representation, the exact image of his nature. And he upholds all things with the word of his power. So this prophet, this king, is Jesus the man, but he's also God, the exact nature of God. Then notice what it says. He upholds all things by his power. When he had made purification, after he had made purification, what does he do? What's it say in your Bible? He sat down at the right hand of majesty where? On high. What do you think? Ascension. Ascension. On high. All the way up there. Having become much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Purification here is cleansing from the inside out. It's the cleansing, ceremonial cleansing that uh, washes away anything that we have fallen short of what God requires. But it's also moral cleansing from the inside, the, the guilt, the guilt that we have, the bondage to sin, all of that guilt, all of that uncleanness that we sense, that separates us. All that's been washed away. Jesus ascends, having shed his blood. So, unlike the Pharisees, Pharisees were big on ceremonial cleaning. 
They would literally clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup was filthy. So if I gave you a glass at my house, hey, here's a coffee mug. Here's one of my favorite coffee mugs, Jillian. Want some coffee? And you look at that, boy, that's sparkling clean. And then you look on the inside, what are you going to do with that mug? No, thank you. I mean, you're going to be like me when I go to a restaurant. I unwrap my napkin, and the first thing I do is I check the utensils. And if there is anything on those utensils, I ask for a clean one. Well, guess what? Jesus opens our heart, God opens our heart, and he sees dirt. He sees filth. And he says, I can't use you. I am separate from sin. But the good news is Jesus gets in there and cleanses on the inside. So that's, that's what he does. He cleanses the parts, one, that no other person can see in our filthy hearts. And he cleanses where no one, uh, no one else can get to to clean. Right? You ever try to clean something that's hard? What, things that are hard to clean are those things where you can't get in and get access to where the dirt's at. And God gets in there and gets access to where the dirt is. Look at Hebrews Chapter 9. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9, 13 through 14. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. Talking about the old sacrificial system. For if, verse 13, for if the blood and go, blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleaning of the flesh. And what he means there is the cleansing of the outside. If that took care of outside cleansing on the basis of the old covenant, look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He cleanses on the inside. And he cleanses from trying to work for our salvation to giving it as a free gift so that then we serve God, not out of guilt, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. Does that make sense? Why do you serve the Lord? I hope you're serving the Lord through our church. That's the calling of every believer. But why do you do that? Not to earn your salvation, but to say, Lord, you gave yourself for me. How can I not give myself to you? Or to put it this way, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but you washed it white as snow and you entered into heaven. And that's the other part of this. He not only provided the sacrifice on earth, but he enters the heavenly holy of holies as both high priest and sacrifice. This is, the, this is the, the concept. He not only is the sacrifice, he's the high priest who offers the sacrifice. And the father says, what's the sacrifice? And Jesus is there ascended in his body. He's got the pierced arms, uh, wrists. He has the pierced feet. He has the, the spear in his side. He says, I'm the sacrifice. But I thought you were the priest. I am. I'm bringing the sacrifice. But what's the sacrifice? I am the sacrifice. I'm the priest and the sacrifice. I'm all of it. I took care of it all. I took care of it all. So he enters that. Now notice what he does when he enters heaven. 
He ascends and he does this. He enters to present himself to the thrice holy God in the most holy of places. Not on earth, but in heaven. He walks right up into the presence of the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. And he says, here I am. As the sinless high priest and as the, the satisfying sacrifice for the sins of my people. Wow, that's amazing. One uh, uh, scholar put it this way, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice once perfected on Calvary, now perpetually presented and undergoing perpetual acceptance. So the sacrifice is there. And it's completed, and it's presented, and it's always there in the presence of God. And God is always looking upon Christ before He looks at you. He always sees Christ before He sees you. He sees you through Christ. You say, but I'm not worthy. Indeed, you're not. Neither am I. He is worthy. You say, yeah, but I I sinned. I already sinned on the way to church. Yeah, we know that. We do that. But he is sinless. Isn't it beautiful? This is what the Father has provided. This is who the Son is. He enters in to the most holy place. And this is just like what happened in the Old Testament. Listen to this. Just as the high priest on the great day of atonement entered the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or in the temple with the completed sacrifice to present it to God. And remember, the high priest was the only one who could do that. And he did it once a year on the Day of Atonement. So Christ entered the holy place with his completed, perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice, which is himself, entered and offered it to him. That's why he had to ascend. So he enters to present. But here's the... The good news keeps getting gooder, okay? He enters to represent the people. So not only to present himself, but he represents the people to the Father. Remember, a priest is a mediator, a Godward mediator. And so he represents his people to God. That's just amazing. And he's representing us there as both God and man, the glorified God-man, the perpetual presence of God. Here's what Hebrews 9.24 says. For Christ entered not into the holy place made with hands here on earth, like in the pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us, for us. He has entered in for us. What a beautiful blessing. That's the first blessing. The high priest satisfies. But what does he do once he enters heaven? Blessing number two. The royal priest sits as our eternal priest. He sits. He satisfies and he sits. Now you say, wait a minute. If you've been here for this entire series... You're like, I thought the king sat. Oh, but remember, he's a priest king. The king sits and the priest sits, but for different reasons. 
So think about this. Why does he sit? Well, as king, he sits to be enthroned in heaven and to begin to rule from the right hand. But as priest, he sits because his redemption is finished and he begins to represent God's people as that finished, satisfying sacrifice. So to simplify, he sits as king to begin to rule. He sits as priest to begin to represent. He's the priest king, the royal priesthood. He's all of that. And he's that for us as his people. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is, this is heavy duty stuff and it's worth pondering. Okay. That's why this, this series is look up in order to live this out. So let's look at two points under this. First of all, Jesus sits because his sacrifice has been made once for all. His sacrifice has been made once for all. So get your hands on your Bible there and uh, let's look at a couple of verses. First of all, verse 1, 3, Hebrews 1, 3. We've already read it, but let's say it. Let's see it again. Hebrews 1, 3. When he had made purification, he sat down. He sits because sacrifice no longer needed. He's it. He sits. Now turn to Hebrews 7.26. Hebrews 7.26. And what we're going to see in each of the passages we're going to look at is once for all is repeated. So look at 7.26. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, perfect, sinless, and what? Where else is he, according to the verse? Exalted above the heavens. See, the ascension is all over the Bible. You just don't have your ascension glasses on. Okay? It's all over the Bible. So everything that I taught in point one, he just summarized. Then it says, Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins because he's a human because the earthly priests were sinners and then for the sins of the people because he did this once and for all when he offered up himself he doesn't have to keep doing it he did it once for all hebrews 9 turn to hebrews 9 we're just going to see these rapidly hebrews 9 verse 11 hebrews 9 verse 11 Notice what he says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. Now, appeared. Appeared where? What's the whole series about? Where did he appear? In heaven, in the ascension. When he appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered, entered where? Into the heavenly holy of holies through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, but in heaven, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place. How long? How often? Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So he sits 
because he doesn't have to sacrifice anymore. He is the sitting sacrifice. He's the sitting sovereign, but he's the sitting sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 10.10. It's all over Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 10.10. One more time. Hebrews 10.10. Notice what it says. By this, we we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Very human, same body that was lived on this earth, incarnation, uh, identification with us as sinners, crucif- uh, crucif- crucified for us. It's the same body, offering the body of Jesus Christ. But how often? Once for all. And now, note, here's the significance. Here's the significance. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. One of the big things about the temple, there wasn't any chairs. Now, I was born with flat feet. My feet get tired. I've, I've had that weakness my whole life. I can't stand. I, I, I look at police officers standing all day, and I'm like, that's a miracle, a standing miracle. Priests, you didn't get to sit because you were constantly sacrificing because you couldn't be that close to God and not be constantly sacrificing. But Christ, but he, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool. Wow, he sits My sacrificial work is done. And yet he sits there as high priest. So notice the second point. Jesus sits because he's the eternal priest king like Melchizedek. Not Melchizedek. He's not Ukrainian. He's the Jewish Messiah, Melchizedek. And he sits because there is no other priest needed. He is now that. And he sits there for all eternity. So, notice in your notes it says the Messiah, as the prophet, uh, prophetic priest king, is both predicted and pictured in the Old Testament. He was pictured in the person of Melchizedek. Pastor Bruce had been preaching through Genesis. And in Genesis 14, we see Melchizedek, the king of Salem who brought out bread and wine, and now he is the priest of the Most God, Most High God. So the first person we ever meet who is priest and king is Melchizedek. But the interesting thing about Melchizedek is we don't know where he came from. He has no lineage. He just pops out. Now, he was a human. He had a lineage. But already in Genesis 14... God was preparing Melchizedek to be a picture of the eternal priesthood of Christ. And so Levi, if you read through the Old Testament, the Levitical priests, they're very specific about who their father, who their, you know, you had to be a part of Levi, of the tribe of Levi to be authorized. So you had to have a lineage. But the eternal son of God has no lineage because he always was is and always will be. He's the eternal priest. And so Melchizedek shows up on the scene as priest. Melchizedek, by the way, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he was the king of the city of Salem, which became Jerusalem, 
the king of peace. Salem is peace. So the king of righteousness, the king of peace is a priest. And so that's the picture of it. But look at the prediction. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 110. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 110. And here's the prediction of priest and king. Okay. And I know we're tying a lot of it together. But you need to be introduced to this. This verse, this psalm, most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Okay, so it's rather important. So let's see what it says. Psalm 110, David is speaking. The Lord, Yahweh, all caps, Yahweh, says to my Lord, my King, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. You will have a people that will rise up and follow your kingship. But notice verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are what? What's it say in your Bibles? You are a priest forever. According to what order of priesthood? Levitical? Aaron? No. According to the order of? Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Wow, you've got king, you've got priest, and you've got warrior all wrapped up in that eternal priesthood. Now, Jesus sits like Melchizedek. So let's go back to Hebrews and let's see it in the book of Hebrews. What's it say in Hebrews? Turn to Hebrews 5.10. Notice what Hebrews 5.10 says. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We've established that. Turn to Hebrews 7. And now he ties together Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. He ties together Genesis with Christ. Notice Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, priest of the Most High, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Remember, one of the things that priests do is bless. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all his spoils. In other words, he gave to the priest of God a tenth of what God had given him, a tithe, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. He's telling us the significance. But look at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And then he dropped down to verse 17. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
wow, this is our priest king. He is eternally not only satisfying God's wrath, not only is, does he sit, but he sits there as the eternal priest on our behalf. Her, Herman Bovnik is a Dutch theologian. He says this, the priest king is seated, seated on the throne of the universe and he's still looking forward to his greatest exaltation when he comes again in judgment. And that's how Psalm 110 ends. He's in heaven now, but he's going to descend and he's going to establish his rule over all the earth. I love this illustration. An evangelist tells the story of the days when he held a tent meeting, back in the days when you had tent meetings many years ago. And one day after a series of meetings, evangelistic meetings, he was pulling up his tent stakes and a young man approached him and asked him, what he had to do to be saved. And the evangelist looked up from his work and said, sorry, it's too late. And the young man said, oh no, what do you mean? You mean it's too late because the services are over? And the evangelist said, no, I mean it's too late because it's already been done. It's already been done. Everything that could be done for your salvation has already been done. And then he explained to the young man, the work of Christ on the cross and in heaven, and the young man got saved. It's already been done, folks. It's all been done. And he's in heaven, ready to grant salvation to whoever asks. Here's the third blessing. He's sitting up there in heaven. What's he doing? Here's the third blessing. The blessings just get better and better and better. The royal priest sympathizes as our tempted substitute. So he's sitting there and he sympathizes with us down here. And you know why he sympathizes? Because he was down here. And he went through what we go through. Except he did it sinlessly. So look at the first thing. Jesus always said no to sin when tempted. He always said no. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet what? Without sin. Without sin. So let me ask you a question. Are you struggling with sin this morning? Yesterday? For the past few months? Maybe for the past years? Are you struggling with sin? Not doing what you should do or doing what you shouldn't do. Well, we have a great high priest who went through all those struggles and then some and always said no to sin. You say, well, he's too perfect to relate to me. No, he's gone farther in the struggle against sin than you and I have ever gone. Because we go this far, you know, and I may go... You know, you may go farther than me and I may give in quicker and you may give in later. But what's the reality of everyone in this room? We all give in when sooner or later. Right. Jesus never gives in. So he knows the struggle more than you realize. Ray Ortland's son, Eric, put it this way. It can be easy to think that because Jesus endured the most crushing temptations perfectly 
He'll be strict with me in my failure. The opposite is true. You'll never find a more sympathetic friend. Here's what Jesus says to you this morning. I know just how hard it is. Now let me help you from my victory over your sin. Isn't that beautiful? That's what he's saying. He not only is tempted like us, but Jesus always says yes to God when suffering. So when tempted to sin, he always says no. When tempted to give in to suffering, Jesus always says yes to God. Because here's the big thing. Obedience is easy when life is good. Everything going my way. Yeah, easy to obey God. But then when suffering comes, all of a sudden we're like, I don't know if I want to pay the price for obedience. I, I only go so far in my obedience until it costs me. Well, guess what? Jesus went all the way. All the way he went. It's, it's just, it's amazing when you see it. Hebrews chapter 5 says this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. So let me ask you this morning. Are you struggling in your suffering? Any frustrated parents here today? Anybody that's anxious about aging? Anybody that's living with pain? Anybody that is scared of the unknown? I think we about covered everybody. Well, guess what? We have a high priest who can sympathize with that struggle. And he sits there in heaven with a sympathetic heart. Hebrews 2.17 He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And then the final blessing. He not only satisfies, he not only sits, he not only sympathizes, but number four, he saves. The royal priest saves as our divine intercessor. Look in your Bibles one more time. Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. This is beautiful. And this is where all of this is building. Look at Hebrews 7.25. It says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever. Save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Wow. And he not only... Now, here's the thing that I learned. I've been telling Gwen about this. We are eight hours in the car, so I had to teach her the whole lesson as we drove down there. Intercession is intervention. He's not just up there. You know, we think of Jesus. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's praying for us. Well, first of all, think about your prayer life. That doesn't sound too exciting, okay? That means Jesus is getting bored. That means Jesus is falling asleep. That means Jesus doesn't pray very effectively, you know, if you project your prayer life onto his, okay? But he's doing more than praying. He's intervening for it. So let me show you a couple things. Wrong ideas about his heavenly intercession. First of all, he's not begging the Father by twisting his arm. You know, sometimes we think of the Father's the mean one, you know, the grudging one that doesn't want to do anything. And Jesus is the... Loving one who's saying, oh, please, Father, do this for them. No, 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 no. He's not begging. He's not pleading. 
He's not on his knees. He's seated at the right hand. They together are working this out for our salvation. So he's not begging by twisting. Number two, he's not asking without acting to help us. When you think of the uh, intervention, you ever, you know, a human intervention, what do you do in an intervention? Get a bunch of people together and you intervene in someone's life to change it, to deliver them from addiction to a new life. You intervene, you take action. Well, in Christ, when he's interceding for us, he not only asks, but he acts on your behalf. He literally intervenes. You say, well, how can he do that? Well, he's seated at the right hand. He has all authority. So, you know, we, we sometimes talk about put feet to your prayers where Jesus puts action to his prayers on our behalf. There's more I could do here, but what are the right ideas? Let's look at the right ideas. Divine intervention to deliver us through suffering and temptations. He intervenes through our suffering to deliver us through it. Not So you say, well, if he intervenes and I'm suffering, is he going to get me out of it? No, he's not going to get you out of it. Well, he might. But more times than not, he gets you through it. You say, well, how can I make it through this? He's up there interceding and intervening on your behalf. That's just amazing. Just amazing. Secondly, divine interest in meeting our needs. He has a vested interest in you this morning. And I love what, in it, I have it in your notes, uh, Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, there's the ascension again, Jesus, the Son of God, let us do what? What should we do according to that verse? What? Hold fast to our confession. Therefore, verse 16, let us do what in verse 16? Hold fast and draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy, that's what you need, and grace which is more than you need. Isn't that beautiful? That's just amazing. But it's a throne. But it's a gracious throne. Because there's a priest king sitting on it. Isn't it? I, I'm, I'm telling you, you need to be enthralled with this. Listen, instead of running to social media, run to your heavenly priest. Amen? And all throughout, as I, you know, obviously I had to read through Hebrews a lot this week. All throughout Hebrews, he's saying these two things. Hold fast, draw near. Hold fast, draw near. Are you tempted? Hold fast to the things of God and draw near to Jesus as your high priest. Are you suffering? Hold fast to your confession. Don't quit. Don't give up and draw near to your high priest. Why? Because you have a fourfold blessing. He satisfies, he sits, he sympathizes, and he saves to the uttermost. Man, that's worth coming for, right? You know what? It's worth living for. So let me challenge you. Look up to your priest king. Look up and live out 
by holding fast and by drawing near. It's a beautiful thing. Read through the book of Hebrews this week. Are you on a summer reading plan? If not, read through the book of Hebrews. Get these notes out and you'll see your high priest. Okay? A lot in there I don't understand. I, I love the one passage. We'll end with this. The author of Hebrews says, he's talking about Melchizedek. And he says, I have, a much, I have much to tell you about him, but you're not able to handle it yet. You need, you, you, need, you need to grow in this. okay? And I thought, well, okay, we could all relate to that. There's a lot more that we could say about the priesthood of Christ. But we've got to grow in the knowledge of the word. And he goes on to say, you ought to be teachers by now of these things, not just learners. You ought to know it well enough and live it sufficiently to share it with others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you would change our perspective of your priesthood. Lift our eyes up to where you sit, having satisfied your wrath, the wrath of the Father against sin, where you sit and you sympathize because you've been through what we go through and even more. And Lord, you're there to intervene, not just ask, but act on our behalf. Lord, may we draw near. May we hold fast. And I don't know who's discouraged. Maybe there's dads here discouraged, grandparents, wherever. Maybe there's singles that are like, where do I fit in in God's purpose on this earth? Lord, may we all draw near to you in Jesus' name.